0: Interviewing Paul Graham and Robert. now, Lowell, a radio program I have to record for tests. So I just have a report in front of me here, um, which was posted by CNN the other day, is basically saying about a walkout or of local schools that across America on gun control. What do you think of the, what is your opinion on whether or not gun control should stay the way it is or should it be stricter? Well, my opinion
1: is being seized upon by people who have a particular political agenda, and there are already plenty of laws. In fact, if we take the incident of the, the parkland shooting, there were many failures by law enforcement to enforce existing
2: law that should have prevented the shooter from obtaining a weapon in the first place. So, there's plenty of laws out
1: there, but criminals don't obey the law. So, murders against the law, taking a weapon in the schools against the law, the Second the law. And if law enforcement, including the FBI, have done their job properly, the shooter would never have been in a position to do it in the first place. So, people who call for new laws or what they're basically calling for is doing away with the Second Amendment. Because the Second Amendment in America is, is a right every law-abiding citizen has the right to possess a firearm. That's not a trivial thing. That was part of the foundation of the country. So people in Northern Ireland should know that uh, we have the strictest gun laws in Europe. But that didn't stop people on both sides from obtaining weapons and using them illegally. So if you want a short answer, the short answer is there's plenty of Existing law in America. People who are criminals lose their gun rights. That's part of the punishment if you go to jail. And uh, the bottom line is criminals don't obey the law. Only law abiding citizens are from the law. And the laws are there at If you look at the people who are supporting uh, part time students with their political message, real no left wing groups have been around for decades to have an agenda to do away with the second amendment and they're exploiting the, the kids from the school for being very vocal and uh, basically they are embracing their pain to try and progress the political agenda which will fail because there's no appetite um, the in uh, congress to bring in any radical new laws and a fan bump stocks
0: Maybe some other minor things, but they're not major changes to the second level. So, that's basically my take on things. Right, um, just to uh, ask, because we're in a debate here, so, um, Robert, um, what would be your take on that stand? What's your belief
2: on?
3: Well, I'm glad to see that um, more uh, students and more parents are starting to uh, take an active interest in trying to curb the amount of guns uh, that there are in the United States of America. I think it's the case, I don't live in the United States, but I think the United States has more guns per head of population than any other country in in the world, including places like Afghanistan, Yemen, Colombia, and Mexico. So in in some of these countries, which are totally and utterly dysfunctional, um, which have broken down and where the rule of law has broken down, um, one would expect there to be quite high levels of gun ownership because... The, the forces of law and order have broken down but we find in the most civilised and developed and richest country in the world the United States of America that you have higher levels of gun ownership than practically anywhere else and that's really puzzling and I think it goes back to the point that Paul raised about the Second Amendment because his, his view or the view that he's articulated in the Second Amendment uh, is obviously very well, um, it, it is uh, a view that's widely held, but if you actually read the Second Amendment, and I've got it here in front of me, Second Amendment says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And it's all down to the idea of a well-regulated militia. When, when the Second Amendment was written, uh, the various states which made up the United States at that state, at that stage of their development, were genuinely worried that other people would come in and invade their states. Well, that's not really uh, happening now, and it's not likely to happen. Well, I so, don't... I think to use the Second Amendment. Uh, which was written for a different purpose, to uh, give all these people access to automatic weapons, to weapons that really they don't need to have. I mean, if they're if they're using weapons to go out and enjoy themselves in sport, that's fine. But people have access to all sorts of uh, extremely powerful weapons or even equipment, that they can convert their existing weapons into very dangerous weapons. So I think, um, looking at it, that what we need is uh, much stricter gun control in in the United States, albeit I, I recognise that I don't live there. Um, so that would be my point of view.
0: Right, well, um, Paul, as we... Pointed out there. Um, there are those who can argue that the Second Amendment isn't is, uh, meant in that way and some could also argue that the Second Amendment only it says that you should have handguns and not fully ACA weapons, not so automatic weapons or AR-15s, as we know, which were used in the last shooting. From um, what? How, how would you stand up for the second commandments if you click like it? Well, I'm guessing uh, but, sorry, um I'm guessing what I'm trying to say is just Do you really need like AR fifteen and did you not be safer and better off with just the ordinary handgun if you were meant to compromise? Yeah, I think Firstly automatic weapons
1: are not Available to the general public. You have to have a dealer's license or a class 3 license, they can't get them, but they're strictly regulated and the only automatic weapons that civilians can own are those that were already in the country before 1987. So automatic weapons are strictly licensed, anyone who illegally converts an IR15 to fire fully automatic can get 10 to 15 years in federal prison, it's a serious, it's a serious offense and there's existing laws that deals with that. The bump stocks were kind of a workaround, but they were approved by the ATF. So people who had them had them legally, and it looks like the law is going to change and they're not going to be available anymore. So the Second Amendment was written, the militia, who is the militia? Well, the militia is not a standing army. The militia is the population. The whole purpose of the Second Amendment was to deal with enemies, foreign and domestic. So the framers had just come out of a war with the British Empire, and their concern was the British could come back or a foreign invader to try to attack the country, And in which case the militia is every able-bodied citizen who has access to a military-grade rifle. And back when the Constitution was written, uh, a flintlock rifle was military-grade. That's what everybody had. So, the purpose of the Second Amendment is not just so that you can defend your house, it's so that you can rise up and overthrow a tyrannical government if one should not about. It. It's, it's there as a check and balance on excessive government uh, power. And, uh, again, it, it has served well in World War II, whenever Admiral Yashimoto was talking about the potential for invading the USA, he said invasion of the U.S.A. is impossible. There would be a rifle behind blade of grass. So it, it's well known in other countries that Americans are well armed. They're not just well armed, I can tell you, as a, an observer who knows something, They're skilled as well. the typical American civilian is more skilled than the average law enforcement personnel would find in Europe, because they practice, they have a gun culture. We talk about AR 15s. Could you give up AR 15s and just have handguns? Well, 95% of murders are committed with handguns. There are more people killed with hammers than AR 15s in the course of a year when you actually round up the statistics on it. The vast majority of uh, firearms related murders are committed with handguns, which we easily concealed. And uh, again, that is regulated in different states. Like I live in North Carolina. In order to carry a concealed handgun, you must do our course. He must be demonstrated to be competent with uh, the competencies he has on the range. And he must be able by the citizen because even certain fairly minor offences can disqualify you from the concealed carry permit. Now what the statistics have shown is in states that have state made concealed carry permits available, serious crime, robberies and homicides have decreased. So people say more guns, more crime. Actually, it's not true. The amount of crime is inversely proportional to the amount of legally owned guns out in the population. North Carolina's good case in Florida. The people who have concealed carry permits in Florida are statistically less likely to be involved in a serious crime than a police officer. And that's quite a staggering statistic. So legal gun owners protect themselves in a lot of places. Yes, you live out in the country, you've been waiting 40 minutes for the police to arrive, and criminals here have guns. So, just the other day, in Gow, the owner of a Chinese restaurant was coming home, and three men tried oven, to rob him to get the to the store. But his wife had a gun, but she didn't really know how to use it. They tried to fight these men off, but the, the owner of the Chinese was killed in the process. So. There are armed criminals out there. You can find a way to
2: get the
0: criminals to give up their guns. Good luck with that. But until the criminals are disarmed, the law Biting citizens have a right to be armed. And uh, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they want to be? To say that, then, uh, this is the argument that, like, if, as uh, you were mentioning, criminals there i uh, with it, not the... A better way that criminals, if you have a criminal record, who don't have the right to have a gun than to get, and then for anyone who is, for, for who is stable and not a criminal, then could have one. Yeah, criminals aren't allowed to have guns, but they have
1: them anyway because criminals don't. Care about the law. So, um, until you find a way to stop criminals, and people talk about banning guns or banning classes of guns. Yes, there's a gun here for every man, woman, child, and maybe two or three, because every gun owner that I know owns more than one gun. In many cases, it could be 20, 30, or 100. So, the guns are already out of circulation, so they're not going away. So, the, the idea that Banning them, um, or some of the more cunning things of trying to try to make ammunition very expensive, and tried to regulate it, tried anything they can to take the guns away from law abiding citizens. Criminals are already banned from having them. So the, the idea of bringing in something more and somehow going to miraculously reduce crime or stop mass shootings is a thing. It's pure wishful thinking. People that live in the real world know. So that the best way to stop serious crime is to have people of good intent, who know what they're doing and who are competent, to be in a position to stand up and stop the crime track. The response time to the police in a city is typically about five minutes for a shooting them. The response time by concealed carry holders is 90 seconds. And there are many videos on the internet that show where concealed carry holders have safe lives, chase robbers off, them in some cases. In their tracks, they shooting in dead and so have tried to rob stores and things. So, the culture here is very different to the UK. The UK does not have a gun culture, but up until the early 20th century, there were no firearms laws so in the UK. Having a firearm uh, opened anyone who wanted But that all changed after the First World War. And with uh, the threat of the Bolsheviks and Communist Revolution, the British government decided they needed to regulate who had guns. Didn't. so the UK has got away with that but if some other country, Russia or whatever gave the UK, what are you going to use to stop them? There's are going to be uh, somewhat stretched in terms of resources and kind of the population so it's just a matter of what your worldview is and how you see things America was carved out of the frontier uh, that hostile animals hostile natives and uh, that's how the country was founded and that
3: culture of self-reliance and not having to depend on the central government still prevails. Well, uh-huh. okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think that uh, obviously culture is a, a huge, hugely important feature. I mean, uh, I think it's the case that in Switzerland, pretty well most uh, males, because they have to serve in the army uh, have access to a gun at home. Now, I haven't looked at the figures in Switzerland, but I would be very surprised if Switzerland has anywhere near the amount of homicides that there are in the United States, even though technically um, uh, Swiss males have have access to, to guns at home. So there obviously is a cultural thing going on, and I would accept that. I think that it's... It's a cultural thing, which is not uh, being a positive contribution. It's maybe something which uh, um, the United States should actually recognise now that they are have become the most successful and uh, richest country in the world. Could actually do with with uh, accepting is is in the past. Um, it does um, the fact that. The, the United Kingdom doesn't have every person armed uh, in the way the, the United States has. Is that a real, and genuine threat to us being invaded? I don't think so. Um, uh, I think the main, uh, I think the main deterrent to the United States being invaded is not the existence of all of all these uh, guns. It's the fact that the United States has the, the most powerful army in the world. And I think that um, the, the the fact that uh, during the Second World War, uh, the United Kingdom, when it stood alone, uh, still had the Royal Navy uh, uh, and was still uh, basically defended by the Royal Navy and the the RAF and its finest hour was much more important than having access to any every individual gun. But, you know, if, if, to quote Churchill, if we did need to fight people on the beaches, I'm sure we would do that. That would be a different set of circumstances. I think those circumstances become a way in which people who are in love with this kind of gun culture, this kind of macho gun culture that obviously makes them feel, you know, Um, important or powerful in some sort of way uh, get away with defending having uh, a huge amount of guns. At the end of the day I think there's a simple correlation by the total number of guns that are owned in the United States and the fact that there are more homicides in the United States Um, and we look at what happened uh, at that school in Scotland, and I'm struggling to remember the name of the school in Scotland. Right. Dunblane. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, where after that attack, um, you know, the British government did introduce uh, laws, and we haven't had thank goodness a recurrence of that. And I think I think we just need to hear, you know. As a parent of somebody who's living outside the United States, the fact that these school tragedies keep on repeating themselves and repeating themselves, and it's very sad. You know, it just seems to be that nobody can do something about this. and uh, and I, I guess um, that's the thing that I mean, you know I, if if I lived in the United States, I just do, do not know if I could feel happy with sending my kids to school because there just seems to be such an open access to guns that some some psycho can get a gun. It's not just criminals, it's people who are, you know, the guns are so available that it's people who are psychologically impaired get access to guns and off they go and innocent kids get killed. And that, that just seems to be that the heart of the issue for me.
0: Days after the attack in February um, a statement was released from the White House which I might be paraphrasing this but it, it basically said that teachers would be allowed to to have a gun to shoot any well, uh, any gunman who was coming in to the school from um, uh, I want to go back to you Paul to try to get your reaction to that because over here it was quite controversial but I want to get the view from someone from someone who actually,
1: yeah, there's, there's a couple of points I'd like to pick up on um, uh, the Dublin incident of, uh, I remember, I lived through all that and uh, that was horrendous but it was also an aberration and you can turn around and say, well, after have the band still you know so there hasn't been another incident since, there may never have been another incident like that anyway, there wasn't one prior to that, that, that was a Singular act of horror by one sick individual, which is very hard to gauge uh, a statistical pattern on. But I, I do remember what went on in the whole situation. I, in fact, at that time uh, sold a lot of my guns back to the government. And I, I was a legal firearms holder in Northern Ireland at the time, the buyback scheme. And uh, I do remember that, uh, but they claim that uh, a cause and effect, that, well, it happened once and bad happen again, it, it probably would never have happened again anyway, but it, it just was of some singular uh, horror that the government felt they needed to do something. But here's the thing, it, it's the feeling that you need to do something as an emotional response to something that's not a easy problem to solve and, and that's the difficulty because people get caught up in the emotions that like, oh poor kids that's terrible well you have the uh the colon mines in back in the 90s yeah. you have the assault weapon ban and the assault weapon man, basically statistically has zero effect on that that didn't change the situation at all the, the other question to raise was about Teachers being armed. Well, here's one of the reasons why you get school shootings, because they decided to make it the law that schools were gun-free zones. That means that some lunatic comes in with a gun. He knows that he's not going to be encountered by armed resistance because the gun is a gun-free zone, and it's not legal for people to have their guns there. So, a lot of schools have what they call a school resource officer you have an armed police officer on duty at the school in case of incidents well the parkland incident showed that the school resource officer was not fit for the job he did not do what he was supposed to do which was win and uh, confront the gunman in fact there was multiple deputies who turned up at the scene and were told, told to hold off and didn't go out and confront the screws the shooter as they should have done which is a standing uh, procedure for police in the United States. So, there are schools in Texas and in other states, and again, gun culture varies from state to state. Some states have much stricter laws surrounding guns than others. But there are schools in Texas where certain teachers, and that's not every teacher, it is certain members of staff have access to guns that are locked away in biometric sense They have done an appropriate training course Perhaps former law enforcement or former military, so they're competent and they have the, the necessary fortitude to handle a situation like that. And
2: funny enough, those girls don't seem to get mass shootings because when the word gets out that you could the
1: met with armed resistance, uh, the nutcase that wants easy targets doesn't go to those places. So the thing is, the UK and the US are very different countries. Uh, the reason the US is going to be so wealthy and successful and all the rest of it because of freedom, economic freedom, uh, freedom to do various things and that's the difference. A lot of that is tied into the American Constitution and the Constitution says the right to bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, it is infringed. It's infringed in every state by various gun laws that already exist. It's infringed for the fact that if you're uh, convicted felon. Your gun rights are gone for the rest of your life. You don't get them back. But that doesn't stop criminals. And the murder statistics, which is another thing, Switzerland uh, has a very high rate of gun ownership. And again, every citizen is potentially on standby to defend the country if they need to. And nobody has in Switzerland in hundreds and hundreds of years. But uh, in Switzerland and America, you've got Comparable rates of gun ownership. But if you took out Detroit, Chicago, and a few of the large cities from the statistics where you have an awful lot of uh, criminal shootings, you would find that for the rest of America, your crime stats would be a lot closer to Switzerland. It's just the aberration of some high crime centers that pushes the homicide rate up as high it is. And those. Places like that have the strictest gun control laws in the United States, Chicago being a good case in point. So basically, these large cities have been run the Democrats for the last 60 or 70 years, have the highest gun crime, have the strictest uh, gun control laws, and it's not working. It's their idea to fix the problem it does not work. Do no you
0: that teachers having the right to have a gun in school within not way, scare a student, especially when they're in those younger years? Well,
1: but most of them aren't even aware that the teachers have access to guns. In those places where it is done, it is not, it, it is very discreet. It's not that they're walking around the school with a gun on their hips. They're able to access firearms from block safes
2: in an emergency if they need to. So the, the children can be blissfully unaware of which teachers are trained and all the rest of it. But the, the kids aren't that soft. If they've grown
1: up, the kids here are taught to shoot when they're six to seven years old. So it's a very, very different culture.
3: Bob? Well, well uh... Another example that I just like to quickly talk about was Australia, where they had um, uh, a gun massacre in Port Arthur in about sort of mid nineties or so. After which, they were then the then Prime Minister, a conservative Prime Minister, I'd have to say, um, and I'd I'd, I'd I'd like to come back later to the whole issue of freedom and. Uh, and access to weapons, Uh, uh, but in the interim, um, after that particular uh, massacre in Australia, about 650,000 automatic and semi-automatic weapons were destroyed, and a whole raft of checks were bought in, and the result of that saw a 59% drop in Australian homicides, Gun
1: homicides. Uh, I'm
3: not sure you're right on the numbers there. Um. Well, it, it's an example of how you know an a, an effective intervention to to reduce and taking out the number of guns in society can can uh, reduce, uh, if you like, homicides or. Take them out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them, whether they're criminals or whether they're just citizens who, in a moment of losing their heads, you know, use weapons that they have to ready and access to. So, I think there is evidence from the rest of the world that this can work, and it's not just a kind of UK-US thing. Maybe if Paul wants to come back on that, Australia strikes me as a country where there's, you know, there's a there's a a tradition of, of freedom as well. It's not as if there isn't in the UK either. We did, ac- after all, come up with the Magna Carta and the Bill of Rights and other things too. <laughs> yes, yeah.
1: yeah, so, and uh, uh, the English Civil War, but uh, this one goes into Irish history. But anyway, the uh, the Australia example, like Australia is the first world country. Uh, it's, how uh, shall we put it? But, is on similar Judean-Christian principles as the UK and uh, the USA. The,
0: uh,
1: the whole thing about the correlation between gun ownership, a lot of the figures
2: on what happened in Australia are somewhat uh, questionable, but that's that's a little bit closer to
1: home. How's things working out in London? London surpassed New York in murder rates recently which is staggering and uh, nobody's allowed to get guns there and nobody's allowed to have them for their own defense apart from the police so if someone is minded what about these attacks in europe where they're getting a big truck and driving into crowds of civilians so if, if someone has the will to do harm they will find a way and in the USA, the guns are already out there. The guns are already out there. The criminals can get them. The terrorists can get them. So all you're going to do with new regulations is to make sure that the law-abiding citizens that should have them for the defence can get them. And that's, that's basically the debate because you're not going to stop criminals with
2: new laws because they already disregard the existing laws, which are plenty. If you want to, like, it's a myth that
1: a 14-year-old can walk into the shop come out with a rifle. Now, it, it's not the case. It's 18 to buy a rifle, it's 21 to buy a handgun. You can't buy a handgun in North Carolina without either a concealed carry or a purchase permit from your local sheriff. There's already a ton of regulations regarding firearms. And under the Obama administration, it was 47,000 people were found to have given false declarations on the application form for a fire firearm and they prosecuted like four of them. So, the, the laws are there if they're enforced by the
2: government agencies, but in many cases, the appropriate laws have not been enforced. And uh, because we don't want to fill the
1: jails any further than they already are, or whatever motivation laws. But the, the short answer to the that is, uh, are more laws needed? Well, we just need to enforce the ones we already have, because there's plenty of them.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I would uh, counter that by saying the general right to bear arms. I mean, I think you can be perfectly well happy to be conservative in your views uh, and to believe that if we do have the state, does take on to itself certain duties in society. Um, they should be limited duties, but they should be functions which the state does protect and does uh, guard very strongly. And this is where, coming back to the Second Amendment, I think the the United States um, has gone down the wrong road. You see, to me, one of the few reasons why you have a state and give loyalty to a state is that that state monopolises the right to use violence, monopolises the right to sanction people, uh, which is why you have a system of law and order. Um, that That's why you set up states. Now, I would be quite happy to say that the states shouldn't intervene in economic affairs too much. They shouldn't tax people resolutely. But since since the idea of having a state is that you take away the right of other people to go around and you know if, if you do something to them that they don't like they don't have the right to chin you or they don't have the right to pick up a gun and shoot you that that is basically you know why we have states and i think my concern with the united states of america is that because of it, the particular reading of the second amendment that has been allowed to develop um uh, the United States of America effectively does not monopolise, um, you know, the use of, of violence. Now, Paul, you're quite correct to say that other states around the world aren't successful in doing that themselves, but um, the United States has has managed to allow this particular gap to appear uh, in its own laws. Uh, I think the the answer in the United Kingdom to the growth of knife crime is that knife crime needs to be properly um, dealt with in the streets of London and there's a lot of evidence that the police aren't being allowed to stop people who they know are likely to be causing um, knife crime and there's been you know, all sorts of uh, reasons for that. But that? In, in the United States, if I can finish uh, just this point, um, uh, I would see the fundamental role of the state be we are the only people that are allowed to bear arms as a government and we bear arms on behalf of the people exercised through freedom and democracy and this general right to, to have access to guns is actually you know, fundamentally uh, undermining of the notion that you have a state or you have a country or you have a government.
0: But I'm going to have to interrupt here because looking at the time we only have three minutes left on well, this debate. Sorry, sorry Graham. So just make it quick, please. Make it quick. Yeah. Make it quick, please. You, you, you raise an excellent point the of uh, the use of force um, people in the USA
1: look at states like Nazi Germany, Communist Russia, Communist China, Cambodia, and other states, where the state had the monopoly on the use of force and used to massacre millions of its citizens. So the lesson has been learned from states that you don't trust the government. And they say here an armed society is a polite society. Well, that works. It works. Because freedom allows us the right to self-defense. It also allows us the right to oppose the state if the state goes bad, as it did in those other examples. So, we'll keep our guns, thanks. Any other countries can run your uh, countries whatever way you like, but uh, we like things the way they
2: are. Thank you very
0: much. Right, so basically I just have the same question for both for this last one and as I said, I want to make this quick because we're at now only two minutes. Cool for So, are we really? Uh, so, as you can see, since the Stumm and Douglas high school shooting, it has been no that students in high school have spoken out. Are we really at the point where adults perhaps need to listen? To young people and children to get it right? Who are you asking, Phoebe? Um, either one of you, please. Well,
2: I'd like to answer that because some people nowadays are more
3: concerned with
0: their history, their constitution, the Civil War, World War II, and everything else. The education system has failed them.
1: So forgive me if I don't want to
3: take another advice from a generation of kind folks, sort of folks. Well, uh, I think every generation has the right to think for itself and make its own um, decisions. Ultimately, um, like uh, any group of people, they'll have to bring the rest of the. The population with them. I think there is some evidence that actually a majority of people in the United States might prefer stricter gun controls, but I suppose that is an issue ultimately right, for what, the people of the United States.
0: Right, but right thanks to you both, Dr. <coughs> right, so now with me, Phoebe now I am going to be interviewing Patience Bradley. She is a ex folk model.
4: How uh, has hi, hi today been, Patience? How's today been? Well, it's been very good so far. I've been looking forward to coming to see you and do the interview. So apart from that, we haven't had anything very exciting, but today's grand. Right,
0: so she's had quite an interesting life. With uh, obviously the modelling and then um, your recent book being published, plus everything else you're doing but I'd like to start at the beginning. So, how did you originally get involved with all your modelling?
4: Right, well, it was funny really because I never expected to be a model, and my mother sent me to a, a course that was sort of like an etiquette course and modeling course. And they told my mum that, this was when I was about 13, and they told my mum I would never make a model because I was too small. So after that, I just decided to do nothing really about it, and I went back to my horses, which I loved. And then my mum got a telephone call from this chap in Dublin, and he wanted me to go down and do some Photoshop shoots with him. But the strange thing was, my mother sort of thought, you know, it didn't sound awfully together, so she said she'd come with me. So we went down, and just a complete fluke, um, one of his photographs was seen by somebody in Vogue, and I went from absolutely nothing to the top. Now, obviously, in... um, Photographic modelling, you don't have to be as tall as you would be in regular catwalk modelling. But I did a bit of that as well. So, as I say, it was really, really absolutely from nothing. I think it would have been one of the last things I would have expected to happen. You've
0: met quite a few people for your career Um, (laughs)
4: I have. Um, when I lived in London, I lived with Richard Burton's niece. And from there, I obviously met quite a few people. I met Elizabeth Taylor, who was absolutely stunning. I met um, oh Christopher Reeve, who I was great admiration for. Gorgeous looking guy. You're very inspired by him. Um, are you? Yes, well, anybody would be. Anybody would be. He was tremendously good-looking when I met him first. That was when he was doing sort of the Superman films and things like that. And then after his accident, I met him again. And I have to say, he really hadn't changed hardly at all. He was still this really vivacious, charming man. And I would say, out of all the people I have met, Um, He is somebody that I was very honoured to meet, and um, he'll always be in my mind. Another man that I thought was really lovely was Paul Newman, and he was a film star, and he was very shy, very different from what I sort of had imagined. And um, really, I would say that the people that are right at the top are very, very humble they're not, um, they just, they don't push themselves forward or think a lot of themselves. It's sort of the people further down the line. And Mick Jagger, he was another lovely, lovely guy. Very impressed with him. So there have been a lot of sort of people through my life, yes.
0: Obviously, a while ago, you published the Book which my mum helped you uh, edit. Yes. Um, could you start at the start and then tell me a bit
4: about what made you want to write that? Right. Well, um, it was it was really strange about the book because I have very bad dyslexia and I really can't write at all or read very much. So, writing books would have been one of the last things, like modeling, that um, I would have considered that I would be doing. But anyhow, I um, I had a very bad eating disorder when I was very young, and I wrote a book that really was illegible. I mean, it was really awful, the um, punctuation and the spelling mistakes. But finally, I let it go out. I met a a psychotherapist who said that it could do a lot of good for people with eating disorders. So I let it be published, and um, it has saved three lives, which I'm very proud of. And then I had thought about writing my life. Everybody kept on saying, oh, you should write your life. You really must do that. And, you know, so many people talk about writing stories, but they don't actually do it. Mm -hmm. And it was something, meeting your mum, I'd thought about it for ages, and I suddenly thought one night, I must look up and see if I can find somebody who could help me. And um, I wrote down a name that I got on the internet, and I put it on the side table, and the next morning when I got up, it wasn't there, and I couldn't find it. And for me to find something you know, is a real problem for me to look through sort of letters. They all become very blurred to me. So anyway, I, um, I decided that I would try and look on the internet again and find somebody else. So I found this chap in Donna Hadee. And the minute I said what I wanted, he said, I have the very lady for you. So he said, um, her name's Jane Crosby Lyle. And, um, would you like me to get in touch? And I said, I would very much. So he said he would give your mum my number, and then your mum got in touch with me. And I mean, I couldn't have written this book without her. I mean, she was amazing. She was amazing. It was a great, a great joy to work with her. And the way we worked was, well, she decided, she kind of came down and met me. And then we kind of decided what we could do, how we would do it best. So she got a little, um, what do you call it, recorder thing, and I recorded into the my voice into the recorder, and then she took the recordings and she wrote the book. And the way it worked, which was really strange, she came down to meet me, and on the way back, driving back that day, she heard on the radio, Peter Sarstead's Where Do You Go To, My Lovely. And she didn't think any more about it, really, until the next time she was actually talking to me on the phone, and your brother was in his room, and what was playing, but where do you go to, my lovely. So she said to me, I'm going to type it out, and she said, I'm going to bring it, and we'll see how the words fit And the words really fitted very well with my life, so that's what the title was. And it's really just an autobiography of everything I've done, um, right from my mother coming over here living over here and my father who I found out wasn't my father so that's quite interesting in itself Um, and all about my dogs and various boyfriends I was engaged 10 times so I've had quite an interesting life that way so um, as I say and some quite famous people as well and um, various things and I had a sad occurrence where um, a fiance actually died and he took his own life, so that's in the book as well. And the book really is just, it's exciting, it's um, up and down. It really covers everything. There are some very, very happy times and sadder times, but it's a very uplifting book.
0: This question might be a little bit personal, so if you don't want to answer it, Just tell me and I'll choose a different one, but obviously you mentioned you have dyslexia and and there has been an eating disorder. Did that in any way affect your life personally?
4: Yes, both did a bit. I think starting with the dyslexia, my mother had a first class honours degree so in English, so she never would have thought of having a daughter with dyslexia. And I think in those days, it wasn't really something that was so in the fore. Much more is done for it now. But I can remember when I was about six and a half, being taken to see the headmaster. And I can remember him calling me around. I was quite a, a small child. And he called me round to the side of his desk. And he said to me, he said, "Patience." He said, "Remember, you're not really stupid." Well, the really never stuck; the stupid did, and it was always um, it was always a case of um, just not being able to read. So, you know, nothing really was done in those days about it, and it wasn't until about seven or eight years ago that I was doing um, something at Queen's, and they very kindly let me use a recorder, like your mum. And that was a tremendous help. And then they asked me if I would like help with the dyslexia. And I said I would. And they sent me to a lady in Belfast, who was very high up in, in dyslexia. But she explained that because I got to this age without really having the help I could have had, she couldn't do that much. But she did help me tremendously in, in confidence with it. So now I'm able to say to people, you know, I have dyslexia, you'll have to be a bit slower. Or if somebody rings me up and they're giving me an address, I have to say to them, you know, you'll have to slow down and I'll have to try and write this down, because I have difficulty um, if I, I can see the length of a word but if I, I, like your lovely name, that really is nearly impossible (laughs) for me, (laughs) but um, I find if, if I don't concentrate on how many letters there are I get really confused and the more confused I get the more upset I get and the less likely I am to be able to write, but now, I just, with with the having a mobile phone now and wow. all this text writing, it has helped tremendously because I don't feel as stupid. But I think the thing is, now I'm able to say, you know, I have got dyslexia and that's a big help. And with the eating disorder, um, yes, I was very, very ashamed of it all my life. And it started off, when I was about 13 with anorexia but it was very how shall I say it came and went very quickly literally with inside I would go so far as say a matter of weeks but anorexia always leads to bulimia because if you stop um, eating your body will fight A little want food so much that you then eat, and you're so hungry, you eat more and more, and then that comes to guilt. And then, when you get the guilt, you want to get rid of the food. I never made myself sick, basically, because I couldn't. Okay, but I did use laxatives, which are equally bad and have given me a lot of problems now. And the book that I wrote about. My anorexia is called um, My Secret is Out, and it's written very badly. There's no punctuation. It's really a bad read, and people have written on the Internet that I'm probably only five years old and that I must be stupid and I must be this, that, and the other, but it had to be written that way. I couldn't. I had to let it go out the way I wanted, and it has saved three lives, so... You can't do more than that.
0: Yeah, it's obviously scary that people could write all of that stuff over the internet. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I. So, just keeping track of time, I would like to use this as my last question. But right. But obviously, no it, it's just at a different point in your life, but. Um, Do you still have any fashion shows for any other people wanting to get into fashion? And do you think, uh, like, do you have a show that would kind of introduce more non-amber, more people who have physical disabilities to get in I guess is what I'm trying to
4: ask okay, You're asking very well Yes, that's very interesting because when I started um, organising fashion shows in Northern Ireland for charity um, I had a, um, a guy that came up to see me he rang me and he asked could I meet him and he came to my house and he had been a wheelchair user but he now was on crutches. So he said he'd always wanted to model, so I said, well, I would love to have him. So I brought Andrew into my team of models. And then not long after that, I met this little girl, and she was six. And she was a wheelchair user, and she joined my group as well. So she she was an absolute hoot. And then I had two other... Um, models a thalidomide friend of mine who modeled and also um, a lady who had a brain tumor so she was she now is in a wheelchair and they were all and the thing was the Millennium Commission in 2000 I got one of the women of the year for that and they asked me would I like to do anything and I couldn't think and they said well look go home, have a think about it, and come back to us. So in the weekend, I thought it would be lovely to have a really glamorous range for wheelchair users, but I thought somebody must have done this before me, and I had helped to research, and I was the first person to design and make a range for wheelchair users. And then my husband, he's very good with names, So he thought of Jonathan Ross saying, really, that you would say, really. So he thought of the name Wheelie Glam. And I have to say, it's been wonderful for me. Now, I own the company, but I don't do anything with it. And my dream is that some young person, some young girl, will want to go down that road. And I would give her the name and I would help her whatever way I would. At the moment, I sort of do very, very glamorous range. But the thing is, um, I think that everybody should be able to model. I mean, if you want to do something, it's not the disability that should be able to stop you. I don't think a disability should be able to stop, look at yourself. I mean, I really... I mean, uh, not many are as wonderful as you, but I really do mean this. I think that if you've got a name and you want to do something, so if there's somebody out there who wants to be a model and they're a wheelchair user, why not? No difference between that and being able-bodied. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think the thing is that um, I think that wheelchair users is very interesting. I interviewed about 100 Ladies, that was from girls from about, should we say, 14, right up to sort of older ladies who are all wheelchair users. And I asked what were their biggest problems. And one of the things that they all said, obviously, each had their own little thing, or what they found themselves, but one of the things that came through was that we as able bodied people don't understand or don't think or don't take the time to use our brains to think that a wheelchair user doesn't move, okay? So therefore, they whereas we can run home and get changed and get into our dirty clothes, it takes so much more time for a wheelchair user. And when a wheelchair user is sitting, they have to sit a certain way. So the top of their lap, that would be where... They would get a lot of, sort of, they'd find it would get grubbier than other parts. And that's something you have to look at. And I think that fashion should be open for everybody. Everybody. There shouldn't be any holdbacks. And I'm, I'm quite sure, you know, in years and years down the line, there won't be. I mean, especially with people like yourself, you're such a, an ambassador yeah. and going forward and showing what people can do. I mean, you, you are just amazing. You are amazing. So you want to really, you know, push this forward. And if people have you behind them, I mean, they can't go wrong.
0: Yeah. Well, um, thanks for letting me do this interview, you. Her uh, dad was patient, Bradley with me. So has a boy's career and her life uh, before her and during her modeling. So thank you very much.
4: Thank you very much for asking me, Phoebe. It's been a pleasure.
0: No problem.